episode three. Hello. Reading three. So we are back now after having had our initial exploration of the American legal system and read the foundational case in at least federal constitutional law and, and federal law. Now we're getting into like legal argument. Like how do you actually, you know, knowing that this is the structure is one thing, like knowing there's executive, there are courts, and maybe knowing a little bit about how courts can engage in judicial review helps you. And you know, we've seen a little bit of legal argument with respect to that. But I really want to get inside now, Joe, the, the you know, what is a legal, how do you make a legal argument? What are its parts? Like what do lawyers actually do and judges do when they dispute something, right? So this section is really more about that. Like mm. it's looking at law and it's more general aspect as to the, once we know a little bit of the what, I'm going to explore a little bit of the how and maybe the, maybe the why. So this section started with looking at like what's going on in a lawsuit, right? I mean, it's two people who are fighting, right? If, if people aren't fighting, we, we, don't, we don't really even need law, really, right? I mean, it, <laughs> it, it provides authoritative guidance, so it helps, gives you a signal about what you should do, right? But it's not until people actually come into dispute about what we should do that we have to really apply bring the it to law, bear. really yeah. apply it, and in a way that people might argue about it, at least, right? And so there's, there's something that somebody doesn't want to do, this undesired thing, right? And in a context, in a factual situation, so there's some facts about that situation, right? There's something, there's some history of the world that's happened, <laughs> some mini history here, where the other person says, wait a minute, the law means that when those facts have happened, this person has to do that undesired thing, right? Uh, we saw an example of that in Marbury, right? When these facts have happened, like nomination and confirmation by the Senate, the president has to deliver, has to deliver that, um, uh, that commission. And then the court says, well, that may be, but we don't have the power to issue that, right? So that right. was a more complicated case. But this is, this is the general thing, right? You were speeding on the highway. Now you have to pay a fine, right? There's a law which says something, right? You don't want to have to pay money to the state or give up your license or whatever it is. Like you don't want to do that thing. And so you resist it, but you go into court where that law is cited and this, the facts about what you were doing. And because of those facts and that law, you have to do that undesired thing. So that's a general flow of it, right? But how do you actually make a legal argument about that? How do you take that law, talk about those facts? and come out to a, with a conclusion. That's where I use this Archer analogy in, yeah. the, in the case book, in the textbook. What, what, did you, what did you think of that? Did I get that about right, you think, in terms of thinking about legal arguments? Yeah, uh, yes, I think there are many ways to talk about it, many metaphors you could use. I think that one is a perfectly good one um, and because it, you, you do need to break it down into its component parts in some fashion to begin to, I think, talk about it and think about it as an activity that you want to do more mindfully. Mm-hmm. So sure, it was, I think it was very good. So, so as a lawyer, you know, I mean, just think about the way people fight about things. You know, so, so a business dispute has gone bad. I mean, a, a business dealing has gone bad, right? And people are angry. And imagine you're a lawyer and one of those people comes into your office and says, I need help here because this jerk has done all these things. And they say, <laughs> they did this and they did that. And then this was unfair and then that's unfair. And they're just throwing all this kind of unfairness and wrongness at you. And one of the very first things you have to do as a lawyer after you check conflicts of interest and other things that you have to do in order not to get disbarred, right? right? But one of the very first things you have to do as a lawyer is to figure out, okay, there's a fight here, and I understand what's going, kind of what's going on with this fight, but what I need to do is identify the particular laws that might have an impact on this case. In other words, what laws might speak to these facts? What laws might compel this person to do what, this, what, what he or she says this other person should do? Right. You know, because they're at loggerheads. They can't agree. And they each want something to do what they don't want to do. So you got you to gotta have some law which would give the authority to courts. 
in order to compel that person to do that undesired thing. So the very first thing you got to do is identify the legal issues that speak to that fight. And the way I say this with the archer is like, you got to figure out what your targets are, right? So imagine an actual archer with actual arrows and a bow and is going out and setting up targets on a hillside, right? And each of these targets could be one might be a statute or a bit of statutory text. It might be a bit of common law, like there's a tort saying uh, that you can't uh, drive your car unreasonably in a way that would injure somebody else. So, so maybe you find that set of rules from those cases. And Another target up, could be a contract. Maybe they had an agreement about something. And that, that, that agreement might have some language in it about what someone was supposed to do. So each of these is like a, a target that you set up on a hillside, right? And so that's identifying the issues. And then what you have to do as a, as a lawyer is to is further to define that target because maybe it's not so clear like what it mean what this contract language means or what the statute means or what the common law rule is so that setting up the target can be a complicated process it can be a process of arguing about two different ways the target should be set up right but that's the very first task right is to figure out what issues speak to these uh, to this fight and then setting up precisely what your criteria of legality are so what are the criteria uh, that if you meet them, the person will be compelled to do what they don't want to do, right? That's figuring out, okay, so the statute says this, what does it mean? You might have to interpret it. And then what you do is you take those arrows out of your quiver and you fire them at your target. And by that, I mean, you figure out what happened in this case, the facts, and you say, these facts applied to this law mean that you should have to do what you don't want to do because, right? You make some argument about why the arrows do hit or do not hit that target, right? Which is saying, in this case, you drove unreasonably, comma, because, and then you talk about why it was too fast for conditions and how it compares with these other cases where it was determined, blah, blah, blah. Or you look at the contract language and you say, the person violated this provision of the contract, comma, because it says they should supply this many widgets on a certain day. And in fact, they only supplied this many widgets, et cetera. So all of that involves facts, right? And you're describing why that arrow either hits the target or doesn't hit that target. So that's how I would set it up. and. And I think it's important for um, even non-lawyers to kind of understand this process because legal argument is very different than writing an op-ed in a newspaper. You just kind of lump together a bunch of arguments about why this issue generally favors your side or why something is generally unfair. And you kind of lump in lots of different kinds of arguments where one of the fundamental tasks in law is pulling apart different kinds of complaints about fairness into separate legal issues, to separate arguments about legality and meeting criteria. There's one issue here, you know, I hear you, mad person who's come into my office. I hear that you're very angry. One issue you have is that they didn't, the person on the other side didn't perform this particular provision of the contract, right? And here's the exact language. And one issue that we're going to raise is they didn't do this. Another issue that, that you're raising is they did this kind of maliciously in order to harm you, right? And there's a different bit of law that speaks to that. And it's a tort law, maybe, right? It, it, there's a general duty to use good faith and fair dealing, or there's a general duty not to slander somebody, or you, you have to point to another area. And so when I hear you talking to me in all these, like, with all these sentences and these, this, this uh, umbrage that you're taking, I'm hearing different targets. And let me tell you what those are, and let me tell you what we're going to do with respect to each of those. That is a fundamental task. And Definitely. So I wanted to kind of first ask you, when you see like beginning law students writing exams, um, answers in exams or typical law school exams will set up a fight like that. And one of the jobs will be to spot the legal issues involved in that fight and to do exactly this enterprise. I use the Archer analogy with my students to remind them about the importance of actually describing that the flight of the arrow, right? So uh, 
because let me just give you an example, Joe. So one kind of exam that I get is one that where the students, you know, they see the fact pattern about the angry person coming into their office and describing all these things that have happened. And they do some separation in their mind of these issues, but they'll basically just repeat the facts back, right? And they'll say, well, here the person was mad because, you know, they, the, um, they didn't deliver the widgets on time. And here's why they didn't deliver the widgets on time, blah, blah, blah. But they never refer to the authority. They never kind of set up the target. They just kind of describe the flight of the arrow without describing whether it's the target. Well, I actually call that the wink, wink, nudge, nudge model. That's where, like, you suggestively state the facts, and, you know, and, and then they didn't deliver the widgets, and then they uh, refused to take my phone call, and then they did this. And, and you, you say all of these things, like, as in, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Right, right? that all sounds bad. That all sounds bad. But they sometimes do that in a way that kind of mirrors the legal standard, but they've never actually set up the legal standard. And kind of the opposite kind of mistake is where I say, you know, well, the contract reads that you shall do blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, therefore, there's a breach of contract here. And forget to shoot any arrows. They they don't shoot any arrows. They don't say, so an important part of a legal argument is that comma because. You know, here there was a breach of contract, comma, because they didn't deliver the widgets and the contract provided that they should deliver the widgets in this way. You know, and here they didn't do that because blah, blah, blah. And you kind of keep going and make your argument about why the facts compel. So it sounds like good arguments combine the law and the facts because both are actually critically important to the assertion state power should be used to make person a do something person a does not want to do right right that's the that's the whole enterprise is there are people who disagree about what person a should do let's say well okay is the state going to make person a do this or not well our, our general approach to this sort of stuff is not without a really good reason, no. <laughs> so give me the really good reason. Ah, there are, there's laws one, two, and three. And in this instance, there are facts, XYZ, GHI, LMN, each of which is relevant to one of those laws, and I'm carefully connecting all of this stuff together, right? Um, I mean, good legal arguments are, are, think about the Marbury against Madison opinion you read for last time, right? Legal arguments take, take a lot of trouble to make things explicit and try to make them clear and connected in small orderly steps. That opinion did that, right? It said, well, you know, to do that, we would need to think about these two things. So let's think about those two things. Do they make sense? How should they, how should they relate to each other? There's, there's a lot of work that goes into making things explicit and connecting them up. Right. And remembering that that is your job is, gets you almost all the way there. Cause you know, all of our students are really bright. They could do that if they just remember that that is their job. Yes. Which is why, why I use the archery analogy remember to set up the targets, remember to shoot the arrows at the target. Because if you remember those things, you'll remember what goes into making a legal argument. What goes into this, this system that we have of the tremendous state power, a, right. a tremendous power to do violence to people, right? Yeah. Like, and if we want to, if we're going to do that, we need to be justified in doing that. And you could, you could, ha- your metaphor could be painting a painting or painting a landscape, or it could be. You're thinking sp- of something less martial? <laughs> it could <laughs> be sculpting a stone. It could be, no, it could, I mean, you could, there's all kinds of metaphors you could use. What, what I guess the good ones we'll have in this context is in a discussion about law students and good legal arguments, um, 
it's it's the the metaphors and models that that help them slow down and remember the important role that that legal that the lawyer is playing in making legal argument mm-hmm. and it's got different components and they're all important okay second topic let's move to the second topic here and that is you know, I, I suppose I don't know anything about the law and I've now learned what a legal argument is. I've seen a little bit about how the state is organized in the, in the last section that we, um, that we read. Um, but like, how do we know what the law is? Like there seem to be a lot of laws out there. I know there's some, like there's some, <laughs> there's some drunk driving laws. I know people fight over business disputes and they've got contracts and, and then there's some, you know, I know about like, you know, murder laws. And I know that there's some kind of laws governing what government officials do, but like, how does this like it just seems like is there just a list out there how do you find what's on the list mm. so part of what i did in this section was to introduce a, a theory of mine that tries to organize into an atlas some fundamentally some some basic areas of law right some based on the public or private identity of the institutions and i don't want to go all the way into this now joe other than maybe to to kind of or outline at least three of these areas and talk about con law and procedure just a second um but maybe to hear your thoughts on how you think students kind of learn how to find the law, like how to know what it is. So let me just say this, right? So what the section goes through is this idea that one fundamental division in law is between the identity of the lawmaker, like who actually makes it, right? And when private parties make law, what we mean is that they're writing down things that will then we will bind them to, you know, you know, it's not just an agreement like, boy, it'd be nice if you did this and I did this. And, and then if you, if you don't do what I, what we agreed to, I'm disappointed. No, there are, there are times when we, when we make an agreement or when we write something down as private citizens, the power of the state will come in and back that up, right? That's a, a contract dispute involves exactly that, right? It's not just an agreement between us that we get mad at each other over. It's an agreement where if you don't do it, ultimately the state will force you to do it. Right. right. You might even call a contract a promise that the law will enforce. <laughs> you might. You might. And students are familiar with these, like a lease agreement is a contract. There are agreements they have with the university. There are agreement, you know, every time you go into a store and you buy something, that's a contract. You give me that good and I give you this money and that has terms to it. So there are Contracts we enter all the time that we are don't even think of as contracts, but where if something went wrong, someone could complain to the state and the state would, would resolve that dispute according to maybe not even general law, but according to the terms of that private agreement. Yeah. And so private lawmakers, right, are recognized when the criteria for private lawmaking is met, right? And in our system, that is almost always about agreement. It's when two parties agree in situations where they also are likely to want to be bound um, or they signify that they want to be bound by that agreement, then we will take those terms, the terms of that agreement as the law and we will enforce it just like a statute. You know, I, I agree that in two weeks uh, I will show up in a room with some money and you will show up with a deed and I will give you that money for that deed and you will transfer your house to me, right? And it, guess what? If you don't show up, I can go to court and say, you promised you would show up. Right. And I can sue over that. That that is a law that binds you. Now, there are different remedies that the courts give for these things. You generally can't, you know, sue somebody for the death penalty or anything like that. Right. I mean, there, there are remedies that only the state has that we'll get into the death penalty soon enough in this class, actually. But um, there are remedies that only the state has. Um, but this idea of the source of the law is fundamental. Right. Yeah. Uh, so contracts, contracts, um, leases. Uh, wills, there are a whole variety of legal documents that individuals create that create little bits of law. 
Now, on the other side of the ledger, there are laws made by the public, public entities, whether they are state legislatures, city councils, national, the, you know, Congress, the national legislature, or even judges, as I point out in the materials, right, that in fact, most of law until relatively recently, and, and maybe even still most of law, I don't know how to think about this. Yeah, it's hard to know what the... Um, is made by judges, right? The whole, the law of accidents, you know, if I, if I drive, if I go to a grocery store and they kind of negligently leave the floor very slick without telling me and I slip and I fall and I break my arm or something like that. Um, there, we didn't have an agreement when we entered about whether they would pay me for this, uh, you know, if they injure me, right? But, and, and maybe there's not even a statute that says that grocery stores have to warn people about slick floors, but there is a general law of negligence out there made by courts which says that, you know, when, when someone, uh, uh, that the, um, proprietors might have a duty to warn in such situations. Now we're not going to go into all of these things now, right? But that, uh, um, but there is, um, so, so courts as a public matter can come up with duties that they think people owe to one another in particular situations. Statutes create duties, right? Um, city ordinances create duties, but there's a whole class of things which creates duties for private citizens that they owe to other private citizens or to the state, right? And that's, fundamentally different than contracts because there's a different kind of entity making that law for different reasons. I make a further distinction between tort law and criminal law as to who enforces the law, right? So a tort suit, if I sue you for negligence, like I say, you know, Joe, you, you ran into me with your car, right? And you were driving recklessly or negligently or something else. And therefore you owe me money, right? Why? We didn't have a contract. That's not private law. You know, where yeah, we didn't I, know in advance right. that you were going to hit me and therefore we had a deal about it. You just accidentally hit me. So I, I could be a stranger. What I would look for is, is there a statute about auto accidents in my jurisdiction? And if there isn't, I would look at the general law of negligence or I would kind of search through the cases these days in Google Scholar or some other service to find out like what law applies to these kind of automobile accidents. Sure. And I might find some criteria. I would find what I'm looking for there is a target that I can set up right, that I can, uh, that I can sue you over. And I will look at the various sources of public law to find that, right? So, and I will see whether that creates a right in me as a private citizen to sue you, right, to shift that cost. So the public me. part of it is the substance of the duty, right, the target. Mm-hmm. The, what's private about it is you decide mm-hmm. whether to initiate this action right. where you, you, you say, pay me this, I refuse. You say, I can make you pay me by enlisting the aid of the state by filing this thing called a complaint. That's right. right. That's up to you as a private party. And contrast that with what I call criminal law, which includes a lot of what most people call criminal law. And that's where there is some <laughs> public entity which decides whether to bring you to court and punish you for a law violation. I use the word punish there. It's a little tricky, but... Um, so, so here we generally think of a public prosecutor, right? Who someone said, Hey, there's a law out there saying you can't do what you just did. Right. And now I'm going, and it says, if you do what you just did, this thing happens, either you pay a fine or something. So even like a speeding ticket, right? That's criminal law. It's, uh, I consider it criminal law. It's a misdemeanor. It yeah. may even be something else, but the point is that it's a very low the, level the crime, reason, but it's a crime. The reason you have to pay a fine and you don't want to do that, but the reason you have to pay that fine is because some public entity has hauled you into court or is telling you they're going to haul you into court if you don't take care of this in advance and settle in advance. Right. um, Even though it didn't cause an accident that prompted some other private individual mm -hmm. to bring an action, even if everyone who had been on the highway, if you could have frozen everyone in an instant and asked everyone else, do you mind? 
that that person is going so fast? Does that bother you? Even if they'd all said, no, it doesn't bother me at all, right? Um, there's still this separate entity, this public entity, that can say, well, on behalf of the public, even if no particular individual privately objected, uh, we're going to object. Mm-hmm. Right? That was a wrong, and we're going to try to make it right. And so for each of these different fields, like contract, criminal law, uh, torts, you know, there are more specific fields within those fields. And, um, but for each of them, there are criteria for creating law. You know, in contract, it's usually just agreement, like offer and acceptance, maybe some other things. You have to be competent and all sorts of other things. In tort law, it may be I'm a, I'm a common law judge who is acting according to precedent, and maybe I can get overruled if I don't or something else, and there's no statute preempting it. Uh, for statutes, it's maybe passage by both houses and signature by the executive or the city council. It could be. So the point is that for each institutional source of law, there are criteria for what it means to make law. And there are constraints. So even if we make law, maybe it's invalid. So we might make a contract, Joe, that is unconscionable. Like maybe we make a contract where I agree to do all kinds of things for you and you give me nothing in return. And a court may say, well, that has, looks like, has what looks like agreement, but it's so unfair that we're not going to enforce it, right? So too, when Congress passes a law, the court may review it and say, that statute is so unfair in this case or in general that we're not going to enforce it. And the reason we do that is maybe the due process clause or something else. So we, point to, we point to different sources for this. But all laws have like criteria of passage or creation and then criteria for legality after the fact uh, that we can look at. So I'm just kind of trying to paint a picture of law in general here as crisscrossing all of these different fields, but also kind of giving students a sense that if you want to figure out what the law is, you got to figure out like, you know, what is the source of the law that I'm looking for here? Does it come from private agreement or does it come from somewhere else? And if it comes from somewhere else, what institution should I look for or should I look to as a source of possible law here? And in general, in the United States, right? So accident law and these kinds of things comes from states and comes either from statutes or from judges and judicial common law. Criminal law is all statutory law and typically all state law with important exceptions these days for more and more federal law right? But they're going to be statutes. Um, commercial agreements often come, they, they almost always come from agreement, but may be modified by statutes, which recognize the kinds of agreements that we can make and, and may fill it in with default terms, etc. So we're not going to fill out, at least in this class, the full kind of atlas of everything in law. But I don't know, does that give you a decent sense? I don't How does, how do you take this as a reader, Joe? Does this kind of guide people, you think, in terms of thinking about the shape of the law in general? I do. Uh, one. Um... One thing I tell my students, uh, and and I use it a lot, uh, I think the two-by-two table is one of the most powerful instruments for human thinking ever devised. (laughs) Um, And uh, and your uh, two-by-two table is an example of that. It's an example of how powerful it can be to... um, advance your thinking about a topic by dividing it on two dimensions instead of putting it all on one dimension. So simply by saying, okay, what's the source of this and who gets to make the enforcement decision and consider those two things as creating four options mm-hmm. and think about what might be in each of those four boxes it is, a, I think, a very significant step forward in your understanding of the overall fabric of law. Yeah, I think... In our tradition, anyway. I I think one way of of putting what you just said 
is when the students see that when you see a two by two box like that, you don't you don't think of it as an advance. You just think of it as an ex, as an explanation or something. But but for someone who comes up with something like that, what they're doing, right? What they're doing is they're seeing something which looks to everybody like it's, like it's really complicated. Like boy, there you know it seems like there's this over here and that over there and that over there, and you do this in this situation, that in this other situation, and one thing a two by two box can help you do is to see actually this complexity comes from two simple things interacting. Right. Right. It's the, it, you know, there's this simple distinction and this other simple distinction, but they both could be happening at the same time. Yes. And that leads to a complicated landscape because it's two dimensional, right? It, but if you understand that it's two dimensional, then you realize, oh, it's just a composition of two simple things. Right. Right. Which is like, Law in general involves a lot of simple things put together, right? Which achieves complexity because, you know, it's too many simple things to keep in the head at one time sometimes. Yes. And, and maybe there's, um, you know, a third dimension. And so you, it's, it's really eight boxes. Mm -hmm. Um, fair enough. I mean, uh, but (laughs) the, the advance over trying to think the advance over thinking, I, it's just a single choice. I can capture all of this in a single distinction. And yeah. it will make all this clear. Uh, my guess is no, um, that your subjective experience of the thing as being really complicated is itself a message <laughs> that <laughs> it's just, there's more than one distinction at work yeah. uh, and that the the interaction of two or more distinctions would would actually make it much more clear when you figure out how to how to talk about the way they're interacting, which what those distinctions are and what they're interacting. And this is an example of that. I want to do one more thing, Joe, before we, before we break. And what I'm going to skip over in our conversation today is, is this breakdown of a legal cause of action into duty, breach, causation, damages, and defenses. Mm. I go over that in the reading material, and it helps you to kind of, speaking of, of making a complicated thing more simple, um, by understanding that the target that I set up has this very common form across contract, tort, and right. criminal law. Like that you have to identify the source of the law, the duty, and then you have to identify the breach and then causation. And causation is very interesting. We've had a show about complicated yeah. causation in our other podcast about complicated causation issues, right? Especially proximate cause. Yeah, pro- which is like bends back around and touches duty in interesting ways. So I will leave that for the reading and for our live conversation. But I, I wanted to get you on the record here in just a couple of minutes about rules and standards, mm. which is one of the – because it's just going to keep coming up over and over totally. again, right? So once we've decided to make some law – like maybe you and I are a city council, Joe. Maybe the city of the, the city of Joe and Christian. Okay. All right. Uh, we are, you know, uh, uh, the shining city on a hill. We are emirs. Is that the right word? <laughs> like if we, <laughs> the emirates of, of Joe and I don't know, but we we have some power, right? Or or we're entering a contract. Doesn't matter what it is. The point is, we want to make some binding law, either for just us or for our subjects <laughs> or citizens. Um, <laughs> We have choices about how to do that, right? We do. And one of the fundamental choices that we have, we use the word fundamental a lot in this class, right? Mm. We're trying to build up from the bottom, so that's what it's going to be, Um, is whether to be very precise about the terms under which the law will intervene or to leave that decision for case-by-case adjudication. In other words, should we create some almost like computer calculation-driven decision-making device? Like, so, you know, the law is that, you can be pulled over if you drive high, you know, in in excess of fifty five miles per hour. And so, if you're going fifty six, you've broken the law. If you've driven fifty four, you haven't. Or is it well reasonableness, meaning that what we really want to haul you into court for and make you pay a fine for it or something else is when you drive unreasonably. 
right? And so this, we have a decision here to make early on, right, about whether to try to capture our thinking about what people should do or in the future in terms of rules, which are crisp and calculative, or standards, which are fuzzier and involve a lot of judgment at the time the case arises. Um, and I even mentioned principles, which have weight, but we we can, we can just talk about rules and standards. Let's can we talk for just maybe a couple of minutes? To sure. Get some quick thoughts about that. Um, how do you think about the rule standards debate? Well, I think it's very important uh, to, and I think it's great that the that the students are getting in on that part of the conversation early because it does it, the laws just sort of shot through with this this phenomenon uh, that the framing of law is on a rules standards spectrum. And uh, I think as you observe with the speeding, uh, the, the speed limit example, uh, it's actually hard to find a pure instance of either of these things. Right. That most things are a, a mix to some degree of, and, and I think a critical thing is how much of the stuff can be articulated in advance so that a person who's engaged in some private planning can make a prediction about how things would turn out after the fact. That's right? the more rule-like yeah. formulation. So, so how much of it are you doing that, and how much of it are you trying to take into account that figuring out what's best, you simply need to know more that you won't know until later. Right. That you won't know until things are well underway, right? So, so like with the tax code. So it's accuracy versus it's right. planning in advance versus accurate treatment later. And that the, the sort of trade-off in that thinking about those two different uh, concerns you might have, right? Yeah. Um, I can do, I can make it very easy to plan, but it will be wildly inappropriate some of the time. Right. Because we will not have taken into account things we learn later. Well, or, the, most, the most determinant rule is plaintiff always loses. Yeah. Right. And or, and that would work very harsh unfairnesses some of the time. Yeah. Of course, some of the time it will be exactly right. <laughs> uh, but but uh, that's why it sounds like a, a beautifully pristine and totally inappropriate and unworkable rule. Uh, another another example of a, of a clear rule is the winner of a lawsuit will be decided by a coin flip. Which actually makes it really hard to plan. <laughs> Yes. Um, but at least you know what you're getting. Yeah. So that is, that's an interesting and in a way, uh, anomalous rule, a rule that defies planning. Right. Um, Many would say our jury system is kind of like that, right? Involves, maybe we can talk about this in a future episode, right? So the standard thing is uh, it does make planning harder, but it is a great way to make sure that your answer is the one that's much more closely adapted to what actually happened. Right. But at the cost of giving harder to plan and at the cost of giving power to people who know the facts of the case before them. Right. So. Right. So, so the essence of a rule is it is it is it retains power in the promulgators of the rule. Right. So poli- if we want to think about yeah. what our policy is. It, it also gives a lot of power to people who are going to make private decisions because it helps them plan them. Yeah, but it could also be, it could be a rule which applies to government. It can be a rule which applies to all sorts of things. But the sure. point is that as a promulgator. I now have the ability to shape some policy and to incentivize certain kinds of behavior and disincentivize right. others because because what I say to, is going to go a long way to determining what the outcome right. is. Right. So if I say that the speed limit should be fifty five on this road, I that I'm it's a long way towards like determining how fast people actually drive on that road. 
And that's, mm, that yeah. points the way toward the complexity, though, right? Right, because Where, discretion and enforcement and right. all these other things are going to come by and make the rules seem more standard-like. Yeah, and for so the standard is like, you know, negligence is the ultimate standard in some ways, right? Yeah. This is like the reasonable and prudent person. So if you don't behave like a reasonable, prudent person and you injure somebody because of that behavior in a direct enough way, in a right, then you can right. be responsible to them. Which we instantly start making more rule-like by looking for rules of thumb and examples and, and sort of conventional scenarios and paradigms right so so when you start with a standard people try to make it more rule like we start with a rule people try to make it more standard like so that's the sense in which that's it's on a spectrum can we can we everything is blended let's to take some our, degree. let's take our last minute here to unpack that a little bit because I, that may be too quick um for people who haven't thought a lot about rules and standards so if you have a rule people immediately make it more standard like how well by by highlighting the fuzzy boundaries around each of the terms in the stand in right. the rule mm-hmm. right and and to the degree that there's some enforcement discretion and some judgment involved in knowing ah this is the kind of situation where this rule has been triggered so in the 55 mile per hour example on a on a highway if it's posted and the and the law is very clear that if you drive in excess of the posted speed limit you can be stopped for speeding and if it's way in excess then you get this but uh Everybody knows that if it says 55 and you drive under 62 or so, you're probably fine. But people have different ideas about the safe harbor in, in excess of the speed limit, right? Because right. you know that, that even though the, the words of the rule don't admit to much like fuzziness, although that often is the case with a rule, something a little clear we can make fuzzy by arguing about its meaning. In this case, it's just the state doesn't, is not going to enforce that speed limit to the letter of the law. The actual experience of the law for those living under it is one of fuzziness, right? Where we have to predict, well, do cops tend to enforce this strictly on this stretch of road? Do they not? Do they enforce it against out-of-staters more or not? You know, do I have a red car or a blue car? Then maybe they'll enforce it more against red cars. Um, does it does it matter what time of day? Does it matter whether we're at the end of the month and a, and a cop is trying to meet his or her quota? I mean, there are all kinds of things you can think about, which involve the unpredictability, right? Yeah. Um, so that's one way. Where rules either through enforcement or through the fuzziness of language can be urged to be more standard-like. And then that pressure will be there, right? Because fairness is always lurking, right? So the unfairness of a rule will create pressure to kind of change its meaning or change its enforcement. And standards become more rule-like because a standard, like we said, conveys some authority to decision-makers. You know, if, you know, if this is reasonable... Um, then, then don't, then, then don't punish. If it's not reasonable, then do punish or maybe punish is the wrong word, but do make them pay compensation or something like that. Right. And the first time I decide that I think about what's reasonable and maybe I'm thinking about common examples and other areas of law. But the second time I decide such a case, I might look at the first case and I use it as precedent. That's one of our big words, right? I say, well, in that case, we found it wasn't reasonable. And so this case is even more unreasonable along. So maybe this case is also unreasonable. And eventually through deciding these cases through the use of authoritative example rather than rule, I'm creating some expectations. And so kind of the, the sin of a standard of you, if you like, that I can't plan because I don't know how it's going to be applied, right? Becomes, that sin becomes reduced in, in magnitude over time as authoritative examples build up and I have a greater expectation of how it will be applied. And so that standard becomes more rule-like. Because although the words of the standard are themselves, they seem to admit a lot of judgment, the precedent which will con- 
fine, the exercise of that judgment has built up to such a point that I that I now know that this case is likely to come out this way and that case is likely to come out that other way. Is that a good, decent way of saying it? Yeah, and the precedent has this uh, has this weight to it, this feeling of weightiness um, by by taking advantage of this intuition that we should be treating like things alike. Yeah, and that. I can point out to you ways in which what happened in this instance is like that other instance. Of course, people can make arguments about that too, right? Because it it might be like some other things as well, which your opponent might want to point out. So it's not like there's, it ends all arguments. It's a way to, I guess, start arguments in a sense. Um, But this, the the basic idea that, that there should be a sort of non-arbitrariness, right? That, that saying it's a standard doesn't mean it's a whim. Mm Mm-hmm. It's still meant to govern in a reliable way over a run of time. That means precedent is going to be a thing people will turn to, I think, pretty naturally as a way to have a conversation about what to make of this individual and set of facts that are fresh today. Cool. Let's stop there. And, and I think this rules versus standards debate will, will heat up a little bit in the case that we read next. All right. See ya.